Hey, what's up, filmers? Welcome back to the Long Lens Podcast. This is the podcast where I answer questions from my YouTube community and just talk about YouTube and filmmaking. Today, we got another Q&A episode, so this one should be pretty fun. And if this is your first time to my podcast, basically the reasoning for me starting this podcast was not because I like to listen to myself talk, but actually it was because I used to do these videos that were Q&A videos. So I would take questions and then I would answer them in video format, and then I would make another video a month or two later answering the questions on that video and that just kind of got a little monotonous and so I decided instead of making videos which those took a long time I could actually answer questions in a podcast format a lot easier so that was kind of what started this podcast and now here we are on season two and I've done a bunch of episodes I've had a few guests on which have been pretty exciting so yeah that's kind of how this whole thing got started and that's kind of how I'm able to interact with my audience a little bit more and answer your questions so yeah this is I believe episode three of season two which is pretty sweet. So we're going to just jump right into it. One thing real quick, if you would like to support this podcast, you can actually join me on Patreon and there's some pretty cool perks. One of the perks is that you actually get to ask me questions there. And I'm not only going to answer your question first, but I'll also give you a little shout out. I also do behind the scenes videos and I do some camera tests and stuff that you won't see on my main channel. So consider supporting me on Patreon. I'd really appreciate it, but obviously no pressure. So again, we're going to start with our Patreon questions first. And we have a few this month. So the first one is from Christian Stenner. And Christian asks, I think you haven't talked about this so far. I would be interested in your take on budget-friendly backup solutions that still have enough redundancy. Do you have a working system for that? Well, I wish I had a better answer for you, Christian. I, I used to have a backup RAID system when I first started my filmmaking career, but over the years, I've just kind of become accustomed to just putting all of my stuff on external hard drives and then just kind of leaving it be. For the most part, unless you're running the hard drives a bunch, it's relatively safe. I keep all my hard drives in like this Pelican style case. So I don't have like, like one major database where I can just access things whenever I want to. That's something that I definitely would like to set up in the future. But right now, the way I've just been doing it is I just buy pretty inexpensive external hard drives, usually in two terabyte flavors. And then I just every, you know, two or three months, whenever they get filled up, I just kind of buy a new one and I just archive them that way. I do have to spin the Mac up again when I want to access really old footage. But for the most part, I'm kind of working in real time where it's like I make a video and I like I put it out and I don't often have to reference old footage or not doing stuff for clients where they're going to ask for footage back in you know a few months so yeah I wish that I had a better answer for you right now I'm probably doing it the wrong way which is just keeping stuff on spinning disk hard drives but if I can I'll link a couple of videos that I remember watching about having a backup system and hopefully that'll help you out a little more all right the next question is from Joel Kimball and Joel asks, not sure if you have covered it before, but what is your computer setup and do you have any recommendations for editing and exporting in 4K? Right now I have a MacBook Air with 8GB of RAM and I can edit with proxies and export, but it takes forever and recently keeps crashing. So yeah, I guess answering this question is also going to involve another question and that is what video editor do you work on? Now, if you're a Premiere person like me, I know that there are Macs that can run Premiere pretty well, but I've heard some 
pretty disheartening news from a lot of people that have like the newer, like the Mac Studio and some of the new M1 chip Macs where it's just Premiere isn't working as smoothly as Resolve or Final Cut is yet. But at the same time, I know a few people that like edit with Premiere on a Asus ZenBook, which is like developed with Adobe to work perfectly with Premiere. And they say it works flawlessly. So if you're with Premiere and you don't want to switch systems, like you don't want to switch editing systems, then maybe look into one of those Asus ZenBook Pro Duos. That's going to run Premiere perfectly fine. But if you're on any other video editor like DaVinci or Final Cut, then almost any of the newer M1 Mac systems would work like the new m2 mac mini or or maybe like an m1 macbook pro what you really want to look for is just more ram and you know a decent size hard drive that's what i would go for right now i am using a 2019 intel based macbook pro a 16 inch with 32 gigs of ram and it's like the i9 processor and i have like when i first got it it cut through my em1 mark ii footage like absolute butter but now with all the new updates and whatnot, like it's actually slowing down in Premiere, that is. If I cut in DaVinci or Final Cut, I probably wouldn't mind it so much. But if you're in either of those two programs, you know, stick with the Mac, just go with like one of like the newer M1 systems with more RAM. Premiere, it's kind of hard to recommend Apple-based systems just because they're not working with Premiere very well, so. Yeah, I've actually thought about it, you know, like switching completely out of the Mac ecosystem, but I just have so much, like, I mean, I have the iPhone, I have an iPad mini 4, which I'm currently recording my podcast into, I have a MacBook Pro, I have AirPods, like all that stuff just integrates with Mac so well that it's really hard to switch out. But, you know, seeing people who use like that Asus ZenBook Pro Duo and seeing how fast Premiere works with it, I'm just like, dang. I wish it would work that fast on my really expensive MacBook Pro. But yeah, that's really all I can say with that. But yeah, hopefully that answers that question. All right, this last question on Patreon is from Ivan. And Ivan asks, when is it a good idea to shoot in normal standard profile? And when is it better to shoot in log? So yeah, that's actually a really good question. And I would say that if you are doing paid work where you're trying to make your stuff look as cinematic and professional as possible, I would definitely say shooting in log is gonna help with that because if you slightly overexpose or underexpose, typically most log formats can compensate for that. So you can pull a little bit from the highlights and pull a little bit from the shadows and you're not gonna lose that much detail. When I would say shooting in a normal profile is a little easier is when you're making like YouTube style content where you're not trying to make it look super cinematic. You just want it to look good and you don't want to do a lot of color grading. So, you know, I still shoot in like log when I'm making YouTube videos. It does slow down my entire process when I have to then grade that log. So yeah, those are all the questions that we have from Patreon. And, and now I'm going to actually go to Instagram because I got just a few questions on Instagram as well. So the first question on Instagram is thoughts on the S5 Mark II. And I've done a podcast episode on this already. I think it's really great. I think it's a real big competitor to all the Sony shooters out there and a huge competitor to the Canon shooters because I don't know if you guys have been watching what's been going down with the Canon EF lenses on the S5 Mark II. And with that Sigma MC21 adapter, EF lenses work just as good if not even a little bit better than Canon cameras when it comes to autofocus. So you can have an entire lineup of EF lenses and put it on an S5 Mark II and the autofocus is gonna work amazingly. So, I mean, that's pretty crazy and that really, really big selling point, I think, for the S5 Mark II because now you don't really have to argue that like, oh, there isn't a lot of lenses for the L mounts. Like, okay, well, get the MC21 and then you'll have access to the entire EF lineup. All right, next question is, if you could swap YouTube channels with anyone, who would you choose? 
well, okay, let's just pretend that I'm just swapping channels and I can just instantly make content that they make and still get the same amount of views. I would say it would probably be someone like like Dan Corrigan or Dale Decker, which if you're not in the skateboarding world, then you probably don't know who they are, but they're just skateboarders who happen to post stuff on YouTube and they skate with a lot of other, you know, pros and, you know, popular skateboarders in California. And they just shoot with their iPhones and put barely edited videos up on YouTube and get 60K, 70K, 100K every single video. So <laughs> that seems super easy and fun because I'd just be able to skate all the time, film with my iPhone, throw it up on YouTube and get a crazy butt ton of views. So that's how I, like that's who I would switch with. But right, the next question is, how important is it to be personable and network to gain opportunities for work regardless of cash? So yeah, I definitely think that there are times where doing work for free can actually be really beneficial. I mean, if you look in the filmmaking world, that's what spec ads are, is you're basically making a commercial on your own dime and you're doing it because you want the opportunity to work with brands like the brand that you're doing a spec ad for. If you're trying to work with a company, then doing some free work that could get you in front of that company could actually be like beneficial to you. I definitely think that, you know, doing free work is beneficial in some areas, but I definitely wouldn't let people walk all over you. All right, next question is, are you Brazilian? Sim, eu metade brasileiro. I'm half Brazilian. All right, and the last question is, have you thought about kids? And if so, will you put them in the path of filmmaking and skate? Yeah, actually, my wife and I are planning to have kids someday. And when we do, I'm definitely going to encourage them to, you know, do stuff creative and hopefully they'll want to skate, you know, do the things that I'm into. But if they don't, that's okay too. All right, so that's all from Instagram. And now we'll go to the YouTube community page. Best way to expose footage with exposure tools, log or 709? Yeah, so the best exposure tools that most cameras have are a histogram, which that one's pretty easy to expose, basically just shows you all your levels. All the way to the right is overexposed, all the way to the left is underexposed. So just trying to get your levels to live comfortably in the middle is pretty good. With most cameras, it makes sense to expose a little bit more to the right without clipping because then it's a little bit easier to like, you know, crush the shadows and just make it look a little bit better that way. I know with a lot of Sony cameras, it makes sense to expose to the right. You can also use false color, which is a pretty popular way to expose. They'll have a little number chart on the bottom. And typically with most skin tones, you want the skin to land at around like 60 IRE and you'll want middle gray to be around 30. So basically you can just adjust your exposure until you see your skins landing on 70 or hold up a gray card and have it land on 30. So that's another way to do it. It's pretty easy. A lot of cameras don't have that built in though. So you, you'll need a external monitor for that. And then another one is just zebras. So you can, you know, typically just like set your zebras to hundred. And as soon as you see those zebra patterns, start showing up in your shot, that means anything that the zebra is landing on is overexposed. So that's another easy way to make sure you don't clip your highlights. And that'll work with log footage or Rec. 709 stuff. All right, next question is seductive promise of the camera industry. Bigger equals better. You've used different sensor formats before. How has this influenced your work? I have the feeling that a small format makes you inventive and the fact that you always have it with you ensures that you produce more slash better overall. The large format requires overcoming in my opinion, but then also offers advantages of quality or other possibilities. A S5 Mark II 50mm F2 TT Artisans is already quite small and handy. Not in comparison to an Olympus EM10, but still small. I kind of covered this in like my latest video about whether or not micro four thirds is still relevant in 2023, but full frame cameras are getting smaller and full frame lenses, you know, you can find small full frame lenses, but 
you still will never be able to find a full frame camera that's as small as a micro four thirds camera. I mean, that's just physically the bodies are smaller, the sensor is smaller, and therefore the lens can also be smaller. So it's all kind of personal preference. I feel like the EM1 Mark II is a perfect camera for me right now. But like I said in the video, it does kind of beg the question of whether or not, like, is that size really worth paying for as opposed to the image that you're actually getting? Because for the price, you can get a really, really nice image out of a full frame camera. Like the original S5 can be had for around 1100 bucks, which if you're going to buy a GH5 for eight, 900 bucks, does that really make sense when you can get an S5? for 1100 bucks, you know, save up a couple hundred more dollars and you get a, I'm not going to say it's a significantly better image, but you get a lot better low light performance. Shallow depth of field is easily achievable. And with a $10 adapter, you can put any vintage lens on there and there is no crop factor. You'll, you know, you're using the entirety of the lens. So in that aspect, I say, yeah, like the, the bigger sensors do make sense now because they are getting a lot cheaper. But if it comes to like optics, are companies or brands going to think that I don't know what I'm doing if I show up with a little Micro Four Thirds camera. I think that stigma is starting to fade away. Maybe not with a lot of people, especially like, you know, like the older generation, but I don't think that they're going to think that I'm not capable of doing something because I show up with a Micro Four Thirds camera. All right, next question is, any tips for how to sell your gear? I'm thinking of using Facebook groups and selling locally for cash instead of selling to a middleman. Switching from the cheapest Canon RF body and four lenses to the Fuji HX-H2S. I've heard some horror stories of selling on Facebook Marketplace. So that's why I like I don't sell my stuff on there. I don't really sell on Craigslist anymore because it's just kind of like a hit or miss. You could put your stuff up on Facebook or Craigslist and it could sit there for months and months before you sell it. So that's why I don't use those anymore. The two places that I sell my stuff at are Gear Focus, which is specifically for photographers and filmmakers. You can sell your old you know, camera bodies, your, your lenses, all that kind of stuff. And it's a pretty secure and safe way to sell. I've sold a few things there and it's worked out pretty well. You do have to wait until your buyer actually gets the item before you'll actually receive the payout, which is kind of like eBay. But I actually sell a lot of my stuff on eBay. Like I have a pretty good seller reputation. So I have like 400 and something reviews and they're all like 100% you know, positive. So it's easier for me to sell stuff on eBay because there's just a much larger audience. You know, it's kind of like posting your video on Rumble or posting it on YouTube. Like you're gonna wanna post it on YouTube because there's a larger audience there. eBay would be my top choice if you have a decent seller reputation. But if not, I would definitely try Gear Focus because you'll probably sell stuff quicker on there than you will on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist. All right, next question is, what is the most embarrassing moment as a filmmaker and a YouTuber? Yeah, so the most embarrassing moment, I think, was when I was still shooting weddings. I was probably around like, I don't know, I was like 23, 24. And I was, you know, finishing up this one wedding. It was the, the reception portion of the night. Uh, the only problem was there was no single men there. And I was, you know, with like my steady cam and like a 60D or something like that, you know, like running around getting dancing and whatnot. And then the only single guys that they could find were this six-year-old boy and me. The MC of that wedding was just like, hey, video guy, get in there. You got to catch the, sorry, it wasn't a bouquet. It was the, the garter toss. I was like, yeah, you got to, you know, catch the garter. I'm just like, I don't want to. And it's like, if I didn't go in there and, you know, pretend like I wanted to catch the garter of the bride who I was filming a wedding for, then it would just be like this little kid 
so I kind of went in there and I just, you know, pretended to be into it. But obviously I let the kid grab it when it was flung. So, so yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. But other than that, I'm not super embarrassed by most of the stupid stuff that I do anymore. <laughs> All right, next question is, are you interested in old digicams or camcorders? Uh, yeah, I've been actually contemplating getting an old, pan, uh, sorry, Canon GL1. because that was a camera that I used back in the day. It was like those old, uh, you know, cameras, like the handles on top was kind of like a VX. I do like old Digicams, not for like doing anything professional with, but yeah, the, the GL1 was one that I kind of want to buy again, just for nostalgic sake. All right, next question is, I'm thinking about getting into filmmaking. I only take stills with my Canon 6D, which isn't the best for video. Any advice for a beginner? Not sure where to start. I'm thinking about either a GH3 or a GH4. To just use the 60D to your best abilities, and then when you actually find that you can't do the stuff that you want to do with the 6D, then switch to something like a GH4 or something like that. But I mean, if you're used to Canon, you know, you might want to go with something like an M50 or something like that. But yeah, you can still do stuff with a 6D. I had friends that were, you know, like shooting actual gigs with a 6D back in the day. So start with your 6D, install Magic Lantern, not to shoot raw or anything, but Magic Lantern does open up a lot of exposure tools for you. So you can get zebras and you get focus peaking and stuff like that. So yeah, get Magic Lantern on your 6D and just use that until it really starts to bog you down. All right, next question is how did you start making money as a film maker gigs set up your own company. So yeah, I started making money as a filmmaker by shooting weddings. That's I think what was my first paid gig was a wedding. And yeah, I did that. I did some small promotional stuff for like some small companies and churches and nonprofits. But yeah, the first thing that I got started with was weddings. All right, next question is going to get back to the basics. What movies do you like? And is there one that made you get into filmmaking? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always liked filmmaking, just because I always liked skate videos. And that's what kind of got me into wanting to make videos. But Something that got me into really wanting to make more cinematic style videos was probably like the Lord of the Rings. I used to watch the behind the scenes appendices for Lord of the Rings, like literally, I'm not joking, every single night when I was a kid. So I think Lord of the Rings, the first one came out when I was 11 years old. I would watch like the behind the scenes all the time and just see all like the stuff that they were doing just to make that movie. So that's what really like lit the fire of like, oh man, I'd love to like, you know, make stuff that looks like that. But then, you know, I also like movies that were shot on pretty low-end cameras by today's standards like there's a movie called monsters which is on netflix right now i think and it was shot with like an old sony ex3 i think with like a depth of field adapter and there's another movie called the raid that was shot on the panasonic af100 which sucks by today's standards but man you go and look at those movies and you're like these look really good so next question is what is the most unrealistic expectation you had to tame when it comes to filmmaking i think an unrealistic expectation that i had was that like everything that i put out had to be really, really good that I'd be willing to show my mom or something or my friends. And that's just something that like, if you really think about it, unless your mom or your friends care about the hobby that you're into or like the, the industry that you're into, like they're not going to care, right? Even my peers in this like filmmaking space, they might not think that it's good, but like other people might, you know? And that's just something that I had to like kind of tame, especially because I go back to this video a lot, but that video of mine that, you know, has like 3.2 million views or whatever. I bet if I showed any of my filmmaking friends that video, they would have just been like, I mean, I guess that's okay, Nigel, but like, I already know this information, right? They probably wouldn't have thought that it's that good, but it obviously was helpful to a lot of people because it got me put on the front page of YouTube and it has 3.2 million views and it's basically 
what built my channel, right? So I kind of had to let go of like every video has to be like this cinematic masterpiece because when I first started out, like that's what I wanted. I wanted all my videos to look like a Philip Bloom review, you know? And it's just like, they're not always gonna look like that. Some of them are just gonna be a little bit more basic. Some of them aren't gonna be lit as well. Some of the audio isn't gonna be spot on, but you just kind of have to let that go, especially if you wanna be a, a YouTuber. All right, and the last question is, I've used and beat up my GH3 for years. I now have one battery, kit lens, the screen doesn't work, but it's holding on for dear life. I love filming videos in low light. What camera would you recommend under $500? What I would say is if you still have the GH3 and just one battery, like, you know, if the GH3 is still working, I would just say instead of spending that 500 bucks on a new camera, I would spend that 500 bucks on a better lens because if you're using the kit lens, it's probably an F3.5 at the, you know, like the brightest. You can spend 500 bucks and get the DJI 15 millimeter F17. You could spend 500 bucks and get the new Panasonic Leica nine millimeter F17. You could spend 500 bucks and get the Panasonic Leica 25 millimeter F1.4. That's gonna let in a lot more light and give you a lot more, you know, a lot better image quality, so. That's what I would go with. Anyways, I hope that was helpful. And hopefully, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Long Lens Podcast. And definitely don't miss next week's episode. There's a lot of really good information and content. We're going to have a special guest. So yeah, stay tuned for next week. Anyways, once again, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you all next time. Later. Later.